And it is my great joy and privilege to be able to bring the word of God to you. Um, like you said, we'll be uh, reading uh, Hebrews chapter 1, the first four verses. Hope to spend some time explaining uh, what that means, how Jesus is better in several ways. Uh, we'll go through that. We'll look at some uh, different ways that we can be tempted to turn aside, how we ought not to. Um, so I'm going to read Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for a sure word, a sure and complete word fulfilled through Christ. Thank you for sending your son. Please help us to pay attention to him and not turn aside. Amen. Um, I think um, uh, as you read through the rest of Hebrews, you'll kind of see this is really uh, an introduction. It's the introduction to the whole letter. It introduces lots of themes that show up um, all through it. But mainly, the big, the big message of Hebrews is really Jesus is better, in their context, better than the Judaism they were tempted to return to. Uh, I want to talk about how Jesus is better in a few ways. Uh, first, he's, better, he's a better revelation from God. He's a better revelation of God, a better way to God, a better object of worship. And uh, then we'll talk some more about some application after that. Uh, so he's a better revelation from God. You can really see that uh, in the contrast here between the long ago in the first verse, long ago at many times and in many ways, versus these last days in which he's spoken to us by his son. It's contrast there. Long ago, but in these last days. The Old Testament was written uh, over the course of about a thousand years, and by the time Hebrews came around, it was about 500 years old, so it was old in that sense, but that's not, what's, that's not the point here. Um, it's not long ago and old because it was um, long ago, the Old Testament is old because the New Testament is here. It's obsolete in a certain sense. Uh, it's not obsolete because it's old. So it's not like a computer that you got 10 years ago, and now it's obsolete because it's old, and there are faster ones out there. It's more like um, the age of horses is made, made obsolete because the age of the automobile is here. We have cars now. We don't need horses. Or you might think how like a new title deed to your house makes the old one obsolete. It no longer belongs to the previous people and all that. Uh, that's kind of what's going on in this long ago but these last days. So flip forward to Hebrews chapter 8, verse 13. I'm going to show this to you. 
In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. And in that part of Hebrews, uh, the author's talking about um, the, in the Old Testament, especially in Jeremiah, the Lord looked forward to a new covenant he was going to make. And the author of Hebrews says, when the Lord spoke of that new covenant, he made the first one obsolete. So you can see it's not, it's not an age thing. It's not that it was 500 years old by the time Hebrews came along. It's, it's obsolete and therefore old. All right, and then in Hebrews chapter 7, this comes up again. Uh, Hebrews 7, verses 18 and 19. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside. That's sort of the obsolescence uh, because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced. That's the introduction of the new thing that made the, the, um, the former obsolete, through which we draw near to God. So um, basically, God spoke in former times, and the Old Testament happened. And we know all the prophets, the history, uh, all that came, came into being. And that happened in, over the course of time in lots of ways. Then God spoke again through his son and this new age of the son revelation made the former age obsolete in a certain sense so the Old Testament is still very relevant to us we still learn a lot about it Uh, we're blessed a lot by seeing uh, all the foreshadowing um, of our savior it's still perfectly true and reliable Um, it's, it's not that we throw the Old Testament out now but we're in a different age, marked by the age, uh, we're in the age of the Son revelation. God has spoken again by his Son. And Jesus is better than all of that. Um, so, you know, you think about who were the messengers in the former time, all, all the Old Testament prophets. Um, pick, pick your favorite. Who's, who's your favorite Old Testament prophet? Some of you might think of Moses. He had an unparalleled face-to-face uh, relationship with God. Uh, remarkable. Um, Hebrews 3 says Moses was only faithful as a servant, whereas Jesus is faithful as a son. That's Hebrews 3, verses 5 and 6. Or maybe you think of Elijah. With his, uh, he resurrected somebody, did remarkable things. Or Elisha, he actually rec- resurrected two people. It's, uh, uh, there'll be bonus points if you can figure out who the second one is. Um, okay, it's the guy's bones were thrown in his grave. That, that's number two. Um, so anyway, so there you go. Two remarkable prophets, uh, three resurrections total, the sum total of resurrections in the Old Testament. Well, Jesus did three just by himself. And that pales in comparison to what's going to happen, um, what he's going to do. So like Jesus is, is better than uh, all this. He was also the star of all these previous prophecies. He was the point of them. And we can kind of skim through the New Testament and learn really quickly about how those in the, this former, now obsolete age, longed to see Christ. They longed to see him. So in Matthew 13, 17, 
Uh, for truly, I say to you, many prophets and righteous people longed to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. And he says similar things, although in a different context, in Luke 10, 23, and 24. Then turning to the disciples, he said privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Or John 8, 56. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he should see my day. He saw it and was glad. So he wasn't thinking, uh, oh man, I really wish we could go back. Or 1 Peter 1.10, concerning the salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours, searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. And these are things that even angels long, long to see, these things of salvation. So Jesus is better revelation from, from God. He's a better prophet. He's the star of those previous prophecies. He's also better revelation of God, of God himself. This really comes out in the first four verses of Hebrews that we're looking at. Uh, Jesus is God. So just look at all the things it says about him. He created the world. He's the radiance of God's glory. And I have to ask, when did God's glory begin to radiate? It's the exact imprint of his nature. And that's a little different than um, uh, God made them in his own image, male and female, he created them. Uh, Jesus is not just um, made in the image of God like we are. He's the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. If you skip ahead a few verses to chapter 1, verse 8, he, you can see he always lived, he will always live. So in one eight, this is applying um, a psalm to the Son. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. That's spoken of the Son, or similar in uh, chapter 1, verse 12. So these aren't things that you say about a normal human. You can't say these things about any of us. Um, although perhaps uh, some of you have met somebody that might have claimed these things about themselves and perhaps they're locked away in a padded cell now. These are the kinds of things that you say about the God-man, about the Son of God incarnate, Christ. So there's kind of a point we can uh, take take from this about uh, the creeds that the church uh, came up with in the early centuries of the church. Um, you can see that uh, Trinitarian theology, that God, um, that God is, uh, I guess we'll start with Jesus, that Jesus is God and man. Um, so there's, um, and then uh, God uh, is a plurality of persons. The son of God um, has a um, has a God over him, <laughs> as it were. Uh, all these things show up in these first four verses of Hebrews, and it's not something that the church just kind of invented uh, for convenience or something in the 300s or, or whatever. Uh, this really comes kind of directly out of Scripture. I hope, I hope that's clear. Okay, but Jesus is a better revelation of God. He's also a better way to God. 
like in, let's look at Hebrews 1, verse 3, a little more closely. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So he blazed the trail. Uh, As Hebrews 12 puts it, he's the founder and perfecter of our faith. He sovereignly ensures safe passage on the way to God for all the saints. He's at the right hand of the majesty on high, verse 3 says, and we know from Hebrews 7.25, he always lives to make intercession. That's what he's doing there. He's interceding for us. He occupies this this supreme position. He's able to to guarantee our safe passage. And there's really a lot of uh, encouragement for us in that. We have um, a sovereign Savior we can trust and uh, rely on. And uh, it's not just that we'll get there safely, but we'll arrive there and have a warm welcome because of his blood shed for us. He made purification for sins, as Hebrews 1.3 puts it. Um, so there really is no other way to God that compares with the way that, that Christ has made. He's a better object of worship. Now, we kind of have to remember in uh, the time when Hebrews was written, and Judaism in that area, apparently there was something about angel worship going on that really comes out in the first chapter of Hebrews. There's a lot about angels and comparing how Jesus is better than them. Uh, I'll explain that really quick. Um, There are also hints of this in uh, Colossians uh, chapter 2. Look at verses 16 through 19, I guess specifically verse 18, Colossians 2.18. Let no one disqualify you insisting on worship of angels. Um, So best I can find, looking at the study Bible notes, uh, there was some kind of a local Jewish and pagan folk belief. And there's some kind of, uh, it talked about uh, some evidence, historical evidence of some kind of magical stone amulet that was designed to be worn around the neck uh, for protection from evil spirits. And it read, Michael, Gabriel, Oriel, Raphael, protect the one who wears this. Flee, O hated one, Solomon pursues you. So that's like a charm that they would wear. I think, I think that's sort of what um, the Hebrews at that time were tempted to go to some kind of religion like that. And um, uh, I think uh, you know, some of you all have been ver- in various parts of the world where um, still there's a lot of... Uh, a lot of this sort of like mysticism and uh, charms and and um, and things involved. Um, so, anyways, I hope I hope that that's not a temptation for any of us. Um, it'll also be helpful for us to remember that angels aren't uh, cute, chubby babies flying on clouds and playing harps. They're really terrifying, <laughs> terrifying beings. They're glorious and have great might and power. Um, so. For example, 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 10 and 11. Um, here, the Apostle Peter was speaking of, uh, of uh, some false teachers who, bold and willful, though they indulge in the lust of defiling passion and um, despise authority, do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones, speaking of angels, whereas angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. Uh, so they're, they're kind of terrifying. Uh, so you think at the end of Matthew's gospel, um, Jesus um, has been put in the tomb, and a great huge stone was rolled in place, and um, and there was a guard set there to guard it. 
and behold, there was a great earthquake because an angel appeared and rolled away the stone and terrified everybody, and the guards trembled and basically fainted. And in the Old Testament, we see angels wiping out entire armies, 185,000 in a single night in 2 Kings 19.35. So angels are exalted beings, but as exalted and high and powerful as they are, they don't compare to the risen Christ. Through his death, resurrection, and ascension, he, he inherited a position that's higher than angels. Now, that might be a little confusing because how can God go from being lower than the angels to higher than the angels? How can God inherit something? And again, we have to come back to uh, kind of Trinitarian, um, Trinitarian thinking about this. Um, so this is, uh, we're really getting into uh, hypostatic union, a fancy word that just means Jesus, the person Jesus has two natures a human nature, and a divine nature. So he is um, divine himself. He's always lived. He upholds the universe and all the rest thanks to his divine nature. This is the same divine nature as the Father, as the Spirit. It's not divided between them or anything like that. There's one God, one divine nature, in a plurality of persons, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Son, the person of the Son, has that divine nature. He also has a human nature. He became a man, put on a human nature in the incarnation. And so he was able to be born. He died. He was raised from the dead. He ascended into heaven, far above the angels, and is seated at the right hand of God and inherited a name that is far above every name. Uh, But the point is, Jesus is far superior to angels because he is God. And who ought we to worship if not God? Jesus is better. Uh, In a word, uh, Jesus is the son of God. And you kind of see that language um, in these last days, going back to Hebrews chapter 1, verse 2, in these last days he's appointed, he spoke to us by his son. Jesus is the, the most excellent son. He is, um, he rules and represents God in a way the Old Testament could only foreshadow. So in the Old Testament, there are a couple of places, I don't have the references here in front of me, but I can get them for you, where Israel is spoken of as God's son. And um, in a way, meaning they're kind of ruling and, and representing him uh, in that way. Jesus does that um, uh, way better. <laughs> he is obedient to his father. There's this relationship of obedience and uh, father, father to son. He is just like his father. You think of somebody being the spitting image of, uh, of their dad. Uh, Jesus is the exact representation, or the exact, excuse me, the ex- I'm saying that wrong, the exact imprint of the nature of God. All right, so what's all that have to do with us? Jesus is better, okay, so what? Well, uh, you're trading down if your religious life doesn't feature Jesus, okay, <laughs> you're, you're trading way down. What, what's special about him? He actually fixes and removes our sin and guilt. My mind, as I kind of survey the religious landscape in the world, there are lots of systems of religion 
where uh, sin, sin might be underplayed, might be downplayed. God's, uh, God's problem with sin might be uh, watered down. Your conscience can be distracted and put at rest by focusing on something else. Uh, this, is not, this is not what Jesus has done. He didn't downplay sin. He didn't water down God's wrath. He atoned for our sin. He actually took our sins in himself on the tree. Our sins were uh, nailed to the tree, and that record of debt was erased, done away with. So he has lots of benefits to us, but he's also very precious to God. So if it doesn't matter to us, he matters. Uh, if he doesn't matter to us, he does matter at least a lot to God. So there are benefits for us, he toned for us, but there's also a really big obligation that comes with us because he is God's son. So you're trading down if he isn't the feature presentation of your religious life. Let's think about this trading down for a bit because it's not, like, it's not just that, like missing out on something great. But by rejecting him, um, you'll have to give an account to the one whom you're the one whom you've rejected. So uh, everybody's think, thought, you know, heard of uh, Rolls-Royce cars. They've been around for more than a century. Uh, their name kind of uh, precedes themselves. And um, you can think of different cars. Uh, they show up in movies and stuff. Um, beautiful, beautiful works of art. Beautiful works of machinery. Um, these cars have been the stuff of, of legends, really. And... Um, you know, people call them the everlasting expression of the exceptional. Uh, they have the world's pinnacle of motor cars. And I, I don't think I'm really one to argue with them because if I wanted to buy one, I'd have to think about how many times I'd have to sell my house. <laughs> so who am I to say no? So just imagine for a minute, what if Charles Stuart Rolls and Sir Frederick Henry Royce came back from the dead just to give you a car and invite you to dine with them. And they weren't giving you just any car, not just any Rolls Royce. What if they went through their collection of cars and they picked out their favorite car, their favorite handcrafted, uh, the, their prize, their prized car, their pride and joy, the apple of their eye, their favorite car of all these wonderful cars and gave it to you and said, we would be honored if you would dine with us later this evening. Wouldn't that be wonderful? But you roll up in your Honda and tell them you sent their car to the crusher because it didn't suit you. <laughs> How would they respond? What would they do? What would they do to you? <laughs> what would you do if you even like made it out of there alive? Your, um, your name would be headline news for a long time. You would, uh, you'd be a disgrace to America. No one would ever trust you with anything valuable ever again. Um, and you would live out the rest of your miserable days in international shame, dying a lonely death, most definitely outside the United Kingdom. You would not be allowed back in. So you get a sense of how bad that trade would be. Well, listen to this warning later in Hebrews. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God 
and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace. For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. That's one of the warnings leveled at the original audience of this book because they were tempted to trade down on Jesus, trade him in for something that, um, some form of religion that didn't do anything. But it also, these warnings and Hebrews as a whole also comes with these encouragements. So this one specifically continues. But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For we have need of endurance, so that, so for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will, will the coming one will come, and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. That's Hebrews ten uh, twenty nine through thirty nine. So may we also not be of those who trade down on Jesus, shrink back, and are destroyed. But may we instead be of those who have faith and preserve their souls, obtaining that great reward. So let's act like Jesus is who he is. Let's make him the center of everything. How do we do that? Well, trust and obey him. I know this is, uh, this is not new. Um, trust and, we know trust and obedience go hand in hand. We know we aren't saved by good works. We're saved for good works, Ephesians 2.10. We can quote that in our sleep. Um, we know that he warned from heaven, Jesus warned from heaven about coming judgment, and he promises an, an inheritance that will survive that judgment. This is not new to us. So let's trust him and obey him. Let's keep his commandments, especially the command to believe and to continue clinging to him for the rest of our lives. We're not just to believe once, but to continue for the rest of our lives. Let's be like the Thessalonians. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, uh, Paul wrote about them, For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, and how you turned to God from idols and served the living and true God. And to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. So don't turn aside. You'll be trading down. Don't do it. Now, I know I'm sometimes tempted uh, to turn aside to naturalism. And uh, the thought will cross my mind. What if, um, what if all this stuff about Jesus and God wasn't real? I can't see it with my own two eyes. I can't handle it. And uh, what if I didn't have to spend so much time and money on things of the Lord? I could instead, um, you know, spend my time and money and effort on uh, more interesting things. So I have to remind myself there are a lot of problems with that way of thinking. Uh, this way of thinking promises freedom, but um, it really doesn't deliver. It promises a freedom from accountability to God. 
it doesn't deliver it. Instead, it delivers weakness in lots of ways, um, in, in a, a wisdom way. You think of Psalm 14, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. In Psalm 119, I have more understanding than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. It's really by abandoning uh, the Lord and his word, I'm abandoning that wisdom that comes from the Lord through his word. It also delivers a moral weakness because if uh, evil can be hidden and people can really only judge by what they see, then it, there's really no reason to be good from the heart. So it removes, uh, it removes that, um, that motivation, that moral motivation, and uh, morality is a disposable illusion. It's moral weakness. It delivers motivational weakness. If nobody's at home at the heavens and when we pray our prayers bounce off the ceiling and don't go any further, then it really doesn't matter what we do, whether good or bad. No matter how great our deeds are, they'll be forgotten. And you can kind of think, I mean, I would, I would challenge anyone, name a dozen people, a dozen uh, great people from the 500s. I don't, I don't know, maybe Will would be able to. <laughs> So if this kind of naturalistic way of thinking is right, then they are gone and forgotten and nothing they did mattered. Uh, and we also have a big problem with Ecclesiastes. So there's kind of this motivational weakness that it brings too. I hope these things aren't tempting to you all. There's also social weakness. If you, it's up to you to create your own meaning because there's no Lord in the heavens who will establish things then you'll only be able to do that by manipulating what's in your power, namely the people around you, your neighbors. And I think we can guess manipulation of neighbors doesn't lead anywhere pleasant. So this way of thinking promises freedom, but it delivers far short of that. Um, these are, you know, I had to, I had to work through these things um, after the Lord saved me. Um, but Something that helped me is to also realize that this way of thinking is self-defeating. So if, if naturalism is right, then it really doesn't matter what I believe, and I'm free to reject it. It doesn't matter. I can, I can reject it. I don't have to believe it. And we can also think about how, <clears throat> how reasonable it actually is to believe in Christ. So the Gospels are at least basically historically reliable. I think everybody, even the most uh, um, non-religious person, would agree with that. And they say some things about Jesus that he did and said some remarkable things that came true. So what's that say about Jesus? And then you can go from there, and what did Jesus think about the Old Testament? Um, if Jesus claimed divinity... He predicted all these things that came to pass. He's probably God. And so what's he think about the Old Testament? He loved it. He treasured it. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, he he uh, hung on his every word, used uh, the smallest words as the hinge point of his arguments. It's totally reliable. And you can also think, okay, that's the Old Testament. Looking forward to the New Testament. What did he do with the apostles? And how did that lead to the New Testament? So I hope that that way of thinking isn't tempting to anyone here, but it is, I think, prevalent. It's common. Um, I think it's wonderful that we have uh, such a comfort and encouragement from the Lord, such a um, complete and reliable word from him. 
we have the Son of God uh, clearly, clearly portrayed in the, in the Word. Whereas uh, the prophets in former times uh, really didn't get the most clear picture. What a wonderful, wonderful blessing from the Lord. Uh, but perhaps there are more like everyday uh, challenges that uh, maybe more, more of you would struggle with. Um, because I know that it, a lot of people think it's odd to focus too much on Jesus. And, you know, maybe like you should only talk about him on days that start with Sunday. But um, I know that rubs off on me. I wonder if it rubs off on any of you all too. Um, like, have you, do you ever feel guilty for bringing up the Lord in the course of a conversation with your neighbors? Does it ever feel awkward? So why should the Lord of heaven and earth be slave to social niceties? He, he really shouldn't be. He is the Lord. And we should remember faith in the Lord is not shameful. The scriptures uh, testify in several places. Everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. It is the Lord who has the final word on that, not, uh, not what other people think. Um, so why don't we all pray for one another? Let's commit to praying for one another that we'll be less timid about the Lord. Some of us struggle with this more than others, um, but, and it'll be a process, but let's, uh, let's start by doing that. And there are also lots of ways that um, I think our love can be inhibited for Christ. Um, I, I know what it's like to love money. Um, but we have to remember, you can't serve God and money. I also know what it's like to love free time, having free time. Um, and uh, sometimes I'll sacrifice too much in order to get it. But these days are evil. Says Ephesians five sixteen. So what kind of uh, free time comes from evil days? So don't be too content with the rest you can get now. Some rest is necessary and good, um, but uh, don't seek it out too much. Instead, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. Ephesians four says four nine. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. What about the love of other people's stuff? I know we have a wide uh, range of, uh, uh, in terms of what people have, personal resources in this church. Um, do you love something that somebody else has that you don't have? Um, that is a form of covetousness, which is idolatry. And I know it's not just the poorer among us who uh, fall into that temptation. Um, no matter how much stuff you have, you still want more. That is covetousness. What about impure thoughts, passion, a sin pattern that's too awkward to bring up? A good way to deal with these things is to bring them into light. Bring them to the light. Um, we have to put to death what's earthly in us. Because Christ in heaven is our life. Or do you have something against somebody else in the church? There's some conflict, some, something's not quite right. Humble yourself and work it out with them. You have an obligation 
to love them. We, we must love one another. Uh, not um, doesn't say like, it says love. They also have an obligation to love us. So when we go to one another, we ought to expect that it'll go well, that we'll be able to work it out humbly in love and truth. And um, what about anger or wrath? It can feel really good to um, kind of give full vent to our emotions. But the anger of the Lord does not produce the righteousness of God. Instead, it produces strife and dissension. I hope all that's encouraging to think about. All these different ways um, that we can kind of turn aside from Christ, some, some ways smaller than others, more significant than others. Uh, it is a struggle. We need the encouragement. But Jesus is superior to everything. We have every reason to stick with them. So let's stick with them. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for sending your son. What a wonderful gift. Please make us continue trusting him all the rest of our life and not turn aside from him. Amen.